Hey, the word community lately has been kind, kind of become kind of a buzzword. And so uh, we're talking about the community of believers today. And, you know, like any number of community people will talk about, right? My neighborhood, that's actually my community. There's an online community. Your cigar smoking buddies. It's your cigar smoking community, right? But, it, but if you're a follower of Jesus, there's actually a greater, deeper community that you're invited into. The Christian community, the community of believers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this community should be your number one community in your life. That's the emphasis of the Bible. That is your number one community. So even Jesus pushes us beyond the communities of our own biological families and says, actually, the family of God is your primary family, the community of believers. And this community is the one that God has chosen. And that's what makes it very different than all the other ones, right? More than your smoking buddies or more than your Facebook friends, this community becomes indispensable for followers of Jesus. Indispensable. We cannot, there is not a lone ranger Christian in the Bible, there's, not, there's always somebody who's in community. We as Americans, who are particularly focused on individualism, it has be, our language has even betrayed us where we go, my personal relationship with Jesus, it starts there, but that relationship actually brings you into a community. And that's where we really are. That's what we're really supposed to be doing. So God, in his grace, chose the local church to be the number one community for those who believe in Jesus. The community of believers. All followers of Jesus must place themselves in and work for a united, diverse, interdependent Christian community. So when we look at 1 Corinthians 12, as we'll break it down today, we'll see that. That we are supposed to be united, not divided. We're supposed to be diverse, not uniform, right? So sometimes we think about unity as uniformity, and the Bible is actually pushing against that. And we need to be interdependent, not independent. Interdependent, not independent. So let's look at this. Let's look at united, not divided. And we'll see here as we break this down that if you try to find renewal, which is what we're after, if you try to find it without community, you won't succeed. And if you try to live the Christian life without it, you'll end up becoming spiritually empty. So Paul is pushing, and the Bible is pushing us to look at what it means to be united, not divided. So look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 13. For just as the body is one, it has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now that last verse we just read can be a little bit confusing, and particularly in our in our like Christian culture where we have separated baptism, right? Like you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of faith, and then like five years down the road you get baptized. In the early church, it was like you receive the Spirit and we baptize you, we dunk you right away. Kind of like Nacho Libre, like, praise the Lord, and just like smacks him into the bowl, right? No, not exactly like that. But right away. 
And Paul's saying that we are all united and we must preserve unity and we have to protect against division. So in Acts chapter 18, what we see is that Paul spends about a year and a half preaching in this city called Corinth. And what he does there, he preaches the gospel and he plants churches and then Paul leaves. That was Paul's thing. He went and he planted churches and then he would leave. And per usual, what happens when Paul leaves, if you know from like the book of Galatians or pretty much any letter, when Paul leaves, things get a little wonky. And so the Corinthian Christians end up turning to all kinds of sinful behavior, and then they became divided on theological, financial, and spiritual grounds. So Paul writes this letter to them, urging them. He uses the word appeal. I'm appealing to you to be united. So 1 Corinthians 1.10, this 10th verse of the, of the letter, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, I'm calling on Jesus right now that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be, what? United in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians to appeal to this community of believers to choose unity over division. And so he uses our physical bodies as an analogy for the body of Christ. Like the verse we read, right? He says, so it is with Christ. Just like your body is united, so it is with Christ's body, the church. So if you, we were to look at 1 Corinthians 12 and we were rewind the game tape just one chapter, for example, and you look at 1 Corinthians 11, Paul calls out division happening during the Lord's Supper, or what we might call communion. Now, young people, in the ancient church, communion wasn't just a cup and a wafer. It was a whole meal. And you would have these huge meals. And what was happening in the Corinthian church is that the wealthy believers were coming, and they're eating all the food, and they're drinking all the wine. Or if you're Baptist, they're drinking all the grape juice. Right? They're drinking it all, eating it all. And then the poor come, and there's none left. And Paul says, hey, communion is supposed to be a unifying act, but by your actions, wealthy believers, you're making it a divisive one. So Paul challenges all believers to not take communion in an unworthy manner, which means don't make it divisive. Don't come to communion and use this opportunity to, for division, but use this opportunity for unity, right? The word communion has the word union in it. Not Philadelphia Union. No, we can't talk about them yet. But union, united. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Paul says, let a person examine himself before he comes to take communion. And that absolutely includes the personal sin that you have between you and God, but in context, it's bigger than that. So if, look, if you look at verse 29, chapter 11, he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So what's Paul mean by that? He's saying don't take communion unless you first discern the body. Our physical bodies? No. What he's saying is you must examine how you have sinned against God and other Christians before you come. Discern the body. He's saying, consider before you take communion. All of us should do this. Am I doing anything in my life 
that is hurting other Christians, that is driving and pushing division rather than unity? Is there something I'm doing towards other Christians that's promoting division rather than unity? And that can be our personal sins, but that also can be our relational sins. And we should do that before taking communion. Because if your sinful actions are dividing the church, what happens is you take part in the unifying act of communion where Christ is present in a special way. You know what Paul says? The New Testament, the God of grace and love, as we often think about it, which is absolutely true. He says, if you come to communion divisive without examining yourself, without discerning the body, and you take communion where Christ is present, you'll be judged. Judged. So 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. The health of each Christian community is directly connected to the unity within it. Do you hear me? The health of every Christian community is directly connected to the unity within it. See, if you drink poison, you'll kill your physical body. And if we allow ourselves to drink the poison of division and let it go unchecked in our church, it will kill the body of Christ. And if Paul's right and Scripture's right, you might even kill your physical body too. Like, could you imagine if after church for Improve Your Serve, one of our serving teams was the body bag team, right? Could you imagine? But this was happening in the, in the Corinthian church. People are taking communion and they're dying. So we're like, hey, would you make that your one or at least your half? The body bag team? How many people would sign up for that? I wouldn't. But that's exactly what's happening. I'm trying to use a little bit of humor just to like alleviate some of the pressure. The truth, but the truth is that God takes Christian unity very seriously. And so should we. And so we must preserve unity and fight against division together. So we must remain united and fight against division over the things that the world finds reasons to divide itself over. The world will find any reason to divide itself. Any reason it can. But in the church, it should be different. We should be united. The world divides itself over belief. The world divides itself over ethnicity and race. The world divides itself over economics and politics and whatever else it can find itself to divide itself over. And Paul says, we must remain united where we hurt the body of Christ and we could even potentially hurt ourselves. And so he calls us to a diverse, not uniform community. Verse 14 for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Paul's saying is we're not uniformed. We're diverse. In centuries past, what hap would happen is some Christians in America would go be missionaries in other countries. And this is a true story. This is really what happened. They would set up this fortress-like area in that country. And they would bring unbelievers and pagans into the fortress, share the gospel with them, and then they would send them out. Not as missionaries to their neighborhoods and their context, but they sent them out as Americans. True story. 
they would put suits on them and they have ties and nice shoes and they make them look like Americans and they would send them back to their neighborhoods. And if you, if you can imagine, that had quite the effect on Christianity in that area. It was like, you don't look like me. I don't even know what you're talking about. And some Christians actually over time, particularly like in Japan, you know, American Christians would go to Japan as missionaries and they actually would dress like the Japanese and there was a change in the, the way we would do things. But what hap- would happen is those American Christians who set up the fortress, they're looking for uniformity, not diversity. They saw the diversity as a problem. You have to look like us to actually be a Christian. They're focused on uniformity rather than embracing the beautiful diversity that comes within the body of Christ. We need Japanese Christians to be Japanese Christians. We need American Christians to be American Christians. Right? There's diversity in that, but there's also diversity in the body of Christ at a local church. The gospel doesn't call us to uniformity. It calls us to unity, and within that unity, there's diversity. And so we have certain gifts. Some of those gifts you're born with. Some of you are just naturally good at certain things. And others, gifts you have developed over time. But what the Bible says is those gifts become empowered by the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ. When you're using those gifts in the body of Christ, they become empowered in a certain way. So that could be music or say you're really handy, like you're good at fixing stuff. In the body of Christ, you become empowered in that by the Holy Spirit to do that. Or maybe you're naturally compassionate. In the body of Christ, you're empowered to be merciful and share that with your neighborhoods. And there are some gifts, though, that the Holy Spirit supplies that you can't get yourself. They actually have to be supplied to you. And what this does is it creates a, the body of Christ as this beautiful mosaic of gifts. And these gifts are to be used within the body of Christ for the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit doesn't give us gifts for ourselves. He gives us gifts for each other. So 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Our diversity of gifts is intended to strengthen our church, not weaken it. You're given a gift that's different than mine to strengthen our church, not hurt it, not weaken it. But we can be tempted to see diversity like the Corinthian Christians, and we see it as a problem. Last week, we discussed the tactics of Satan and the powers of darkness. And one tactic Satan does, and he accuses us, and he helps us accuse other Christians, and we oftentimes will believe this lie that he tells us that says something like this, you're not needed by the Christian community. You're not needed. And sometimes he says, you don't need the Christian community. Scripture's call is to integrate us But Satan wants to isolate us so he can destroy us. So I read this last week, this quote last week, and I'll probably keep reading it like a thousand more times. But Richard Baxter, as his Puritan pastor, he said, If Satan tempted Christ himself when he was fasting and alone in the wilderness, how much more will he take this as his opportunity against you? What Richard Baxter is saying is, like, Jesus was isolated in solitude, and like, Jesus, all by himself, and Satan comes after him. You think you isolate yourself? Satan's not going to come after you? Listen, if you want to short-circuit the spiritual renewal you need, 
you'll start living like you're not needed by other Christians. And you'll start living like you don't need other Christians. But the fact of the matter is, you are needed, and you do need other Christians. God made the Christian community diverse for its good. So look, jump back in verse 15 here. Paul says, If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Right? We're supposed to see this as like a ridiculous thing. Like, imagine just like some type of mass walks in the back doors and it's all eyes. We would all be running out these exit doors quickly. Paul's saying like, that's ridiculous, but that's what we do. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. See, envious comparison can destroy the Christian community. Craig Blomberg, in his commentary on this, he talks about John Chrysostom, who was an ancient church father. He says, Chrysostom acutely points out that the foot contrasts itself with, not with the eye, but with the hand. He says, we are prone to envy those who surpass a little rather than those who are patently in a different class. What he's saying is some of us say, I can teach, but I haven't been given the gift to preach like them. What's that about? We become envious in comparison. Some of us say, I've been given the gift of leadership, but I haven't been called to be an elder like him. What's that about? Or I've been given a musical ability, but I'm not leading on the praise team. What's that about? I guess I don't belong. I guess I don't belong. But there's also a shame complex that can destroy the Christian community. Some of us aren't envious of other Christians. We just think we're never going to be as valuable as them. We think we're never going to be as valuable as them in how much we give. Why don't give as much as so-and-so? So no one will miss me if I'm gone. Or I'm not gifted like that person, so God can't use me. Or I only serve on a team that's behind the scenes, so I'm not that important to the church. So I don't belong. But the Bible says, Paul says, you're no less valuable than any other part in the body. You're no less valuable. If you're envious or full of shame, and you allow those things to build inside of you, You'll become bitter, you'll become resentful towards others, or your self-esteem will hit this critical low, and you'll hear the, the accusation of Satan, and he'll say, you aren't needed. Isolate. Withdraw. Pull back. They're not going to miss you. They don't like you anyway. You're not needed. And when we begin to withdraw, what happens, we eventually leave. And when you leave, we all suffer because we lose you and we lose your gifts. And we become a less complete picture 
of the body of Christ, that we could be together. But there's also a superiority complex that can also destroy the Christian community. So if you jump back in verse 21, listen to this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the bodies that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts, if you don't know what your unpresentable parts are, you can ask your parents, are treated with greater modesty, which our, most, our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body and that the members may have the same care for one another. See, what's happening in the Corinthian church is they saw speaking in tongues as the greatest gift, the greatest spiritual gift. And Paul is awesome like this because Paul will later humble them by telling them that actually prophecy is better. It says prophecy is better because it builds up the church. Tongues only builds you up. It says choose prophecy. That's better. But the Corinthian Christians who spoke in tongues had a superiority complex. And they treated those who didn't speak in tongues like they weren't needed. We don't need you. They valued these front and center gifts of speaking in tongues. And they saw those as the most valuable. And they believed the accusations against their brothers and sisters in the Lord that we don't need you. And this is a particular danger for those of us who serve front and center. Those of us who preach or are in leadership or are, we're up front on Sundays, where, where we believe the accusation of Satan and we allow our egos to get the best of us and we believe we're better than anyone else, we're better than anyone who doesn't have my gift. And we believe we don't need Christian community because we don't need the diversity of gifts, we just need our gifts. That we're good enough on our own. And at least with the people who were least, all we really need is people who are front and center like us. And Jesus warns against this kind of attitude, this superiority complex. He warns against seeking out places of honor. And instead, he says, choose places. Like at, he says, like in one, one story he talks about, he says, hey, when you go to somebody's house and you want to sit next to like the host of, of the party, hey, choose the seat furthest away from him. So then when the host comes, he says, hey, you're too far down the table. Come, sit next to me. He's saying, God's saying, hey, don't choose the places of honor. Don't seek them out. Don't try to get them. Instead, find the things that God, the places where you're serving, that God will see you and God will honor you. And God will say, hey, come up to the front of the table next to me, next to me. We all have gifts and those differences are actually what make our church special. God doesn't want uniformity at Liberty Northeast. He wants diversity. And he's composed the body intentionally to be diverse. And in a world that's incredibly divisive, one of the most powerful ways the church can actually be on mission in the world is to be united in our diversity. Craig Blomberg, in the, again, he says... Church should be a place where people gather and get along with each other who have no merely human reason for doing so. 
He's saying, like, have you ever had, like, this experience at church when you look at your friend at church and you, you praise God for them, right? But you're like, there's no way I would ever be friends with you outside of this. Like, there's dudes here that I love and they're my friends. But if it was out, the church was not involved and I was outside the body of Christ, there's no way I would go out of my way to be friends with them. There's no way. But I praise God for them and that God has actually brought me into the body for that reason, to actually get to know people I wouldn't be friends with. That's the way the church can say, hey, this is what we are. This is powerful. The message of Jesus is true and it's powerful because everybody in this room probably shouldn't get along, but somehow we do. So we have opportunity as the body of Christ to show the world what it could actually look like. The, the church, in many ways, shows the world what it looks like to be the world. It should look like this. Look what you could be if you debrace diversity as a strength, not as a weakness or a danger. But without diversity empowered by the Holy Spirit, what ends up happening is we actually run after uniformity. And we want everyone to be like us. We want everyone to look the same. So like in our world, you may have heard it, or you might even have said it yourself, something like this. I'm okay with ethnic diversity so long as that group votes the same way as me. Like, I'm okay. Like, we're good with ethnic, ethnic diversity. Love it. It's awesome. Just as long as you vote like me. We're like, I'm okay with economic diversity. It's great. It's fine. Like, that we have middle class people. We have rich people. That's all awesome. Just as long as everyone spends their money the way I would like them to spend it. Or I'm okay with diversity of opinion just as long as everyone ends up agreeing with me at the end. Like, it's cool. We can have conversations. And yeah, you can share your opinion. But, like, we can only remain friends if eventually you agree with me. Where I'm okay with religious diversity so long as they have the same sexual ethic as me. That's the way the world works. But this is, it's fake diversity. It says because you don't fit into the mold that I've set out, I don't need you. Or because I don't fit into this mold, I'm not needed. And we may say we want diversity, but really all we want is diversity we can control, and that's fake diversity. It's actually uniformity. Because people don't fit in molds. And so what we end up doing is we end up pushing those voices out, out of our orbits. And we listen to our echo chambers, and we withdraw from people who think differently than us. And what happens is this tyranny of control leaves us with a divisive world, and eventually our world will implode. Guys, please hear me. Our world will implode if we don't start working on this. And if it can't find it in the church, they're not going to find it in the world. And if that mindset is out there, it's going to make its way in here, and it probably already has. And we'll have to fight against the temptation to drink the poison of division and kill the body of Christ in this place. And fortunately for us, God composed the body of Christ. And that's good news. It's somewhat bad news for you because you have brothers and sisters that you wouldn't have chosen. But God chose them. And so that is good news because he put it together and he determines who's valuable and who, in, the, in the body of Christ. And he says, every part is valuable. 
Everyone is needed. Every part is necessary for the whole. So your gifting is just as valuable as mine, and mine is just as valuable as yours. And the gifts you use for your one are just as valuable as the gifts you use for your half, and vice versa. And the gifts you used on, use on one team are just as valuable as the gifts you use on another team. And God did that so Verse 25, there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And Paul's saying we need to be interdependent, not independent. He says in verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. See, as parts of the body, we become interdependent, not independent from each other. So I love it when Paul says in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So when one of us suffers, we all suffer. If one part of your body is broken, the rest of the body has to adjust to take care of that part of the body. But when one part is honored, we all rejoice together. And this is only possible if we see ourselves as interdependent. See, if we're envious in comparison or we have shame complex or superiority complex, we can't do this because it makes us independent from others. So we can't rejoice when a brother or sister gets praise because we didn't get it. I can't be happy for them. I deserve to be happy. That's independent thinking. Or it makes us feel less valuable. That's independent thinking, too. Or we can't weep with others when they weep because we believe they never deserved what they had in the first place. You had an awesome life and you lost it all. You never really deserved it anyway. Or we believe that our pain is worse than their pain. And we said, I said a thousand times, everybody's pain's a 10. It's a 10 out of 10. Their pain is their pain, your pain is your pain. But independent thinking goes, my pain's worse than yours. So whatever you're going through, we say things like, oh, it's just a phase. You'll be fine. Get over it. And so we have no sympathy for others. But when we see ourselves as interdependent, when one brother or sister suffers, all of our hearts break too. There's a beautiful picture on the men's retreat where a couple guys were extremely vulnerable about where they were, and I watched guys weep with them. Weep with them. See, when my brother suffers, my heart breaks. And when my sister is honored, I can rejoice. Chrysostom says that the head is crowned when, and the whole body is honored. Right? So think about a king, right? Once you put the crown on the head, everybody knows he's the king. Or when someone wins an Oscar, you know how they oftentimes spend time recognizing all the cast and the producers who made their achievement possible? Right? It's a team effort. Or when a quarterback throws a winning touchdown, he celebrates with his offensive linemen because it's their victory too. So when one of us wins, we all win. When one of us loses, we all lose. And Jesus perfectly modeled unity, diversity, and interdependence for us. So we can do this. Jesus had every right, every right to divide from us because of our sin. He had every right to seek a uniform team. Everybody looks the same, everybody has the same gifts, but he chose fishermen, tax collectors, he chose a zealot, he chose disciples who were front and center and those who were behind the scenes, he chose disciples who spoke up, sometimes spoke up too much, 
and some who didn't speak at all. And when he had every right to reject interdependence and be independent and withdraw from us, what did Jesus do? He remained connected to us by putting his spirit within us. So now we can suffer alongside of each other because Christ suffered for us, and we can honor each other because Christ gave up his honor for us. None of us suffers alone. None of us receives honor alone. So a side note, if you feel awkward when you receive honor, especially publicly, you can receive honor because it's not really about you. It's about Christ working inside of you. So if you reject honor when people give it to you, you're rejecting it for all of us. Because we all are celebrating what Christ has done in you. But when one of us is honored, we all are. And so at the, at the men's retreat, which you guys saw the picture, this is a great picture of this. Think about how crazy this is and how it sounds to the world. Sixteen guys who probably would never be friends outside of Jesus decide to spend a weekend in the Poconos together to grow side by side and to run after godliness together. And they spent time together so they could be more united in Christ, embracing the diversity of gifts that each guy had brought to the table, striving to live more interdependently, and then they end up, spent, they end up weeping together and rejoicing together. Like, where in the world do you find that? Tell me. I don't know. And so, my challenge to you are a couple things. First, I, this is not the application of the text. It's not what Paul's talking about. Ephesians 4 is better for this, all right? But since we're on the topic of unity, the same unity we have on Sunday, have on Wednesday too. I've told you before, I'm already in a mental fetal position for 2024. Already mentally there. What happens Tuesday should not affect our unity. L listen to me. There will be people in this room who will vote differently than you. And that's okay. And the beauty of the body of Christ is you can actually get together, debate those things, and say, I will lose the debate, but I will not lose my brother. I will lose the debate, but I will not lose my sister. I will remain united with them no matter what. So what happens on Tuesday, be united on Wednesday. But a more applicable application. Get involved in a home meeting. That's the best way to be invested in each other. It's the best way we have to practice unity, diversity, and interdependence by joining up with a small group, which we call home meetings here. So if you aren't in one, get in one. Don't let Satan isolate you. Don't. I know there's going to be days where you don't feel like going. I host one. There are days I love all the people in my home meeting. I don't feel like seeing them. But it's on the calendar, and I committed to it. And you know what? I'm oftentimes really encouraged and blessed by it because I have people there who weep with me or I weep with them or we rejoice when there's breakthroughs. So if you don't know how to get involved in one, go to libertynortheast.org slash home meetings or talk to me and I'll plug you in one right away. Don't worry. I got skills like that. But also, extremely applicable for today, improve your serve. Use the gifts God has given you for the common good of others. You need us. We need you. 
every one of us, I don't care if you're serving on one and a half teams already, you need to go outside, go to the tables, and let us know what your one and a halfs are. And you could change them there too. If you're like, yeah, I'm, I actually want to do a new one and a half. That's great. Some of us need to make adjustments. But a lot of us need to either have a half team or serve on one and a half. We don't have one. We don't have one. We don't have a half of one. So my suggestion to you is when you do that, when you leave today, go outside, walk down the tables. It'll be like, if you've ever been to like a college fair in high school, it's going to be kind of similar. Just walk on down. There's no candy and no free pens, unfortunately. But we have gifts at the info table if you want them. Walk down. Find your one and a half. And my suggestion to you is at least pick your one or your half of one, not on a front and center team. Liberty Kids, set up and tear down, first impressions, those things are not going to be front and center. But those are the places where God will honor you the most. Because he sees it and his honor is more, is more appropriate and it's better and it's just more beautiful than the honor we can give you. So the people upstairs right now serving in Liberty Kids and those who are on that team, they deserve honor. The guys who set up every Sunday, they deserve honor. You don't see them, you should honor them, but the Lord sees them and honors them. So together, let's work for this, okay? Let's work to create a united, diverse, interdependent Christian community here. Together, let's do it. Let's pray.